I'm Effie Parks. Welcome to Once Upon a Jane, the podcast. This is a place I created for us to connect and share the stories of our not-so-typical lives. Raising kids who are born with rare genetic syndromes and other types of disabilities can feel pretty isolating. What I know for sure is that when we can hear the triumphs and challenges from others who get it, we can find a lot more laughter, a lot more hope, and feel a lot less alone. I believe there are some magical healing powers that can happen for all of us through sharing our stories, and I'll take all the help I can get. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the show. Once Upon a Gene, I'm your host, Effie Parks. This is the first episode of 2021. So thank you so much for being here with me for a new beginning. I'm really excited to share my conversation today with a really special guest. You've heard me speak about Our Odyssey before. It's an organization that uh, helps support people living with rare disease and chronic illness for young adults. I spoke with Marcel Longlade in episode 48 and Anna Laurent back in episode 36. Definitely check those episodes out. Today, I'm actually speaking to the founder of Our Odyssey, but uh, we're not talking about his organization that he created so much as we are talking about his personal experience to support himself and the health community. Uh, his passion is driven by his mother's 17-year battle with the rare genetic disease known as Huntington's disease. At the age of 20, he was tested and diagnosed as positive for the disease and is a gene carrier. So he now dedicates his life to helping others along this <laughs> their journey facing rare disease and chronic illness. Man, this was a really touching conversation and... He really opened up to me, and I think that you're going to gain some really special insight from him, and I just think he's amazing. I can't believe how young he is. I can't believe what he's doing with everything that he's facing and that he has faced throughout his life, and I just feel really lucky that I get to share this part of his journey because I know we see this bold brave, busy guy all over social media. And him sharing this really important piece is just really valuable. So thanks for tuning in. Enjoy my conversation with Seth Rotberg. Hi, Seth. Welcome to the show. Hello, hello. Thank you for having me, Effie. I appreciate it. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm really excited. I've watched you from afar, obviously. You're all over the place. And so I was like, I need to talk to Seth. I've talked to a couple of your amazing, not necessarily co-workers, but sort of from our Odyssey. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I know a few, a few uh, we can call them colleagues or just awesome, amazing, <laughs> you know, young adult advocates who have been able to also be on, on the podcast. So when you reached out, I said, "Oh well, I have I had a little FOMO, so I was I had I had, <laughs> yes. I had to get on this because I keep seeing other people get on it. Uh, I know you had Anna and you had Marcel, and then I even saw Bo. I think Bo is like rocking one of your was it like a, a shirt or something? Yeah, yeah, he sure was. You're gonna be next. I can't wait. I can't wait to get the swag. <laughs> it's gonna be great." <laughs> Uh, well, thank you for saying that. I really appreciate it. I love just meeting everybody in this community and, you know, digging through some stuff. So absolutely. And I w I'm definitely going to link our Odyssey again. And I think a lot of people know about it and we'll touch on it a little bit today. But I kind of want to just talk to you mostly more than our Odyssey as a whole. Uh, yeah, so. that's, that's totally fine. I, I'm happy to go whatever direction the wind takes us. I love it. Well, why don't you just share with us like 
your connection to the rare disease world? Sure. So my story really started when I was about 15. So about 15 years ago, I'll let you figure out the math on that one. But I, I learned about you know, the rare disease space through my mom's diagnosis of Huntington's disease. And Huntington's disease, which I might refer to as HD, and it's not the HDTV. Uh, I, fun fact, I actually had someone say, oh, HDTV. And like, again, they didn't realize the context, but I, I was like, nope, it's, it's a disease. It's not a TV, but it's, it's a rare neurological disease. It slowly deteriorates a person's physical and cognitive abilities. And some people say it's like having ALS, Alzheimer's, and Parkinson's all into one disease. And, you know, when I, when I first learned about it, it was tough because I didn't really understand it. So I did what most people do, which is go to Dr. Google. And I Google what is Huntington's disease and saw all the symptoms and noticed my mom had many of them, noticed that the average lifespan is about 10 to 20 years from diagnosis, and then noticing that there's no cure. So 15-year-old me didn't really understand what, what that meant, what that entailed, and was really in denial for those first couple of years because no one really understood what I was going through. I, I did have my, my friends and my family, and I'm very fortunate to have a good support system then as well as today. But none of them really understood what it meant to be a young adult who comes from a family impacted by a rare disease. But to kind of you know fast forward a little bit for you, Effie, is that with Huntington's disease, it's a genetic disease. And I didn't realize at the time that I had a 50-50 chance of inheriting it. So... You know, I went through those first couple of years being in denial, not wanting to do anything, to then going to college and realizing that I was at risk and I could end up like my mom one day. And knowing that actually impacted me mentally because I would constantly just think, okay, do I have it? Do I not have it? If I drop my phone or forget an earlier conversation, oh, my mom did that too. So does that mean I have it or not? And so, I wasn't sure if I wanted to get tested my freshman year in college. I kind of went back and forth, spoke with my sister about it, spoke with my aunt about it, realized I just wasn't ready to get tested and, and just kind of brush it off until the following year when I really just wanted to plan for my future. I wanted to know what the future held. I'm a planner and, and I want to make sure where I, I have a better sense of what my future holds when it comes to career planning and family planning, dating, the list goes on. And so five years later, at the age of 20, I went through genetic testing and found out I tested positive for Huntington's disease, which means I'm technically not diagnosed. I am a gene carrier, but I'm guaranteed to get it. And so even though I'm not living with a rare disease, I'm preparing for life one day with one, seeing what it did to my mom for 17 years and seeing what it's done to other family members and other friends in the HD community. That's a lot, Seth. I was just gonna. That's a lot. I was just gonna say. So where where should we go from here? <laughs> well, I mean, I just I wish I could hug fifteen year old Seth. I'm sorry that I'm sorry that you went through that and that you felt so alone and was, you know, kind of searching on your own and getting your answers through Google and then probably becoming somewhat of a caregiver to your mom at home, right? Like how fast did it progress for her? Were you were you involved in 
kind of like her daily care on top of your own? <laughs> Great questions. And, and so how we found out about Huntington's disease is actually very interesting because it's a it's usually, it's, you know, genetic and then there's some sort of family history. We didn't have that. And so the prior years, we were trying to figure out what was going on with my mom. The doctor said she had major depression and these mood swings, bipolar disorder, but it didn't, it didn't address her poor balance and her wobbly movements, the slurred speech, and some of the other cognitive and behavioral aspects of the disease. And so the way we found out was we had an intervention with my mom and we told her that the option was my dad and I were going to leave because at the time my older sister was in college at the University of Arizona in Phoenix because she hates the winter. Uh, I probably should say I'm from the Boston area. So she's been out there ever since. But, you know, at the time it was my dad, myself, a few aunts and my uncle. And we said, my dad and I are either going to kind of leave because we didn't know what to do anymore, or we had to check my mom into a mental facility. And, you know, she wasn't happy about the either choice, but decided to get go into this mental facility. And, you know, think about it from, you know, being a kid and seeing your mom in a facility where you know that they shouldn't be. In. And that was tough for me because I knew she wasn't supposed to be there. And I was just praying for answers. I was, I was hoping that we'd figure out what was going on so she could leave. And Eventually, after those those tests and evaluations, that's when we discovered, you know, Huntington's disease. And to kind of go to your other point of the caregiver aspect, I mean, my dad was a caregiver for her. And to see him do that for 17 years is, is quite remarkable. I mean, it's something that I I hope one day if, if I, you know, get married and whatnot. And if, if I always say, if I get sick before there's an effective treatment, that there's someone just like, you know, uh, that took, that might be able to take care of me just like my dad took care of my mom. But yeah, I mean, I, I did help out. I had to, you know, take on additional responsibility at home and really just, you know, it, try to, I, I essentially just grew up a lot faster than my friends. I had to mature a lot faster. I had to just uh, you know, I was a 15 year old who I who felt a lot older. And I always joke now that I'm 30 going on, you know, 45, 45, because of just, the, I have the old soul. I mean, I've, I've been through a lot as a young adult. And I don't say that to compare myself to others. It's just, it's just something I've, I've realized and I've recognized. And I said, wow, this is, this is a lot. Yeah. That's a really convoluted way to for your mom to eventually get her diagnosis, but I'm glad it worked. I mean, you know, the average life or the average diagnosis is five to seven years. And so we think that it ended up being about five to seven years until she got the proper diagnosis. We tried to trace it back to say, okay, when did she start kind of acting different? And so that was probably in her early 40s. And so for me, it's kind of like, okay, am I going to start showing symptoms around that? Okay, how many more years do I have? And what, you know, what else do I need to do before I might, quote unquote, get sick? And so that's something that I have, you know, come to try to recognize, but also try to not live in the future, but live in the moment, live in the now, because I can prepare as much as I want for the future, but if I don't just enjoy what I have today, I'm going to look back and say, I wish I did X, Y, and Z. 
What was the difference in kind of your emotional well-being from being this teenager and you know, realizing something was wrong with your mom to making the courageous choice of getting a genetic test at only 20. Where were you mentally that was different? And after you had it, did it kind of spiral somewhere else? Great questions. Uh, I tried to go to therapy those first couple of years. And I'll be honest, I did not like therapy whatsoever. And I think it was because it's so important, and I know this now, it's to be your own advocate and, and find a therapy that, or a therapist that fits your needs. And at that time, it was just kind of like, okay, who's a therapist who's available? Okay, it's, it's here's my choices. And then them talking just about my mom and trying to learn more about my mom versus my needs. And that was tough because... I was like, hello, like I'm here and I, it's it's about me, but I also didn't advocate enough. And I, I always just emphasize that piece because it's okay to advocate. It's okay to have to, not to force a relationship with a therapist if it's not there. And, and so 15-year-old me was kind of like, or even just high school me was, was, was in denial. Was it a, I was an angry kid growing up, I'll be honest. And some people like you anger? I was like, yes, I, I was an angry child because I had a lot of resentment for life and asking myself, why did this happen to my family? What did we do to deserve this? I don't know what really shifted in my mindset to suddenly go from, oh, this sucks to, oh, I want to get tested. <laughs> I think it was just, I, I might've just started researching it a bit more and learning more and, and being more familiar with Huntington's disease and realizing that I was at risk. Because when I was a junior in high school, I was in biology class and I did those, those Punnett squares where you match like the uppercase, you know, A with the lowercase B. And you, it tells you if you, you might get, you know, your parent, your mom's genes versus your dad genes. Well, I was taught that because the dad was dominant, that I wasn't at risk, even though that's not true. And that's also not how punished squares work. But that's also why I kind of brushed it off at the beginning. Because I was like, oh, I'm in the clear. I'm good. But then I realized that wasn't the case and wanted to learn more about it and really take control of my life and take control of what I can do and what's in my hands. And going through genetic testing was, was an interesting experience because I didn't go through a genetic counselor, which I always stress the importance of the genetic counselor because they guide you along the way. And I, I spoke, I got a referral from a, my, my, from my primary care to a neurologist. You know, he asked me some questions about family history and, and whatnot. And then like two weeks later, went in to get my results. And that's when a genetic counselor was there. But Again, this was an unknown person to me. So I knew what the news was going to be if this person just suddenly showed up. And I don't really remember much of that kind of day besides hearing you tested positive for Huntington's disease because I was just thinking, what's that next step? Who am I going to tell? And what do I do now? Yeah, diagnosis day. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's essentially D-Day, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So there was never any communication with you before you were 20 from medical professionals that this was maybe an important test for you to get? You just kind of figured it out on your own more so? That's what I think. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's probably that's that's real. <laughs> that's what happened. 
I mean, don't get me wrong. So when my mom, you know, her neurologist is one of the best, in my opinion, in the country for Huntington's disease. And we're very fortunate that we got connected to him. I'm going to give him a nice little shout out, Dr. Dr. Frank over at Beth Israel. And he's just, he understands the needs. He under, he listens to the patient. It's like, it's, it's like everyone, you know, if you had your wish list of what you wanted a doctor to, to be, you'd probably say, oh, someone who listens, someone who's caring, someone who's going to help me along the way. And this was Dr. Frank. So I knew about him, but I, you know, for some reason, you know, again, 20 year old me didn't think much about, oh, I could go through him and talk to him about it because I thought if I went through him, he might tell my parents and I didn't want my parents to know about it. And I didn't realize about the whole like HIPAA thing and realizing that he he probably wouldn't say it if I told him, hey, I, I don't want you to say anything. Because when I actually got tested, it took me about three years to tell my dad and my sister and my family and most people Wow! because I didn't want my mom to find out. I didn't want her to feel guilty. I didn't want her to feel like, you know, bad for passing this down, even though she had no control over that. And she was already suffering. So for me, it was just, that's a lot to carry. It is. It, it, it is indeed to, to carry that. But I'll tell you that I was very fortunate to have a good support system of friends. It wouldn't have been as easy if I didn't have my friends. What was it that made you said, like, once you got your your genetic testing and it came back positive for Huntington's that you were ready to go and you were ready, ready to figure it out? What did you mean by that? I think for me, it was kind of like, okay, who, who do I tell about this and kind of trying to process all of this? And then what does this mean for my future now? Because you, even when you go into it, sometimes you're kind of praying that it, it's negative. I've had some friends who went in and they've tested negative. They're like, you sure? Like, I'm pretty sure this is this test is wrong. And it's because, you know, you kind of go into it hoping it's negative, but sometimes it's either it is negative or you're hoping it's negative and it's positive and you're like, okay, wow, this is, this is a lot. I, I was fortunate that I actually had a friend from the HD community come with me for my test results. Well, she was, she was in the, in the waiting room, not in the office with me. <laughs> so I, you know, came out I was like, all right, let's, let's go, uh, let's go get some ice cream. <laughs> uh, but Yes, I have that that one friend who understood it, right? She was she was a fellow young adult in, in the HD community who who you know was there for me and I will always appreciate that because you know I, I could have went by myself and that would have sucked. That wouldn't have been fun. Now I, I did this while at college, so I had to drive an hour and a half back to college and pretend like nothing happened because I didn't tell any of my friends from college. I just told my close friends from from my hometown. So you know, I go back to college and I act like nothing's wrong, but deep down I'm like, this sucks. And I'll, I'll admit, you know, I had a few had a few extra drinks that night, but <laughs> it, it's yeah. kind of like it's not the it's not the promoted or anything it's just more of like you know that was kind of my way of like hey I'm not going to deal with this uh I'm going to enjoy tonight with my friends and just pretend like it's it's not that big of a deal but over time I realized it's a part of me I realized that it's never about hey this is Seth with HD it's this is Seth 
who wants to help out others, who wants to make a difference in the community, who's caring, who's helpful. But also, you know, there's this other part of him that has this condition. And I think that's where it's it's important to explain that part of the story because it, it just, yeah, it's just so essential. Absolutely. Did you feel after holding that in from your family and a lot of your social circle for so long, did you feel freedom afterwards? Did you feel like maybe you wished you would have brought it up sooner? Yeah, I, I learned a lot. I learned that telling my telling your family about something that important, it's okay. And sometimes this is, you know, for me, I was making assumptions that my sister would feel extra pressure to also get tested. And my dad would, you know, might be stressed because like, oh, okay, I'm a caregiver to, to my wife. And now my son, I might have to be a caregiver for. And I just didn't want to feel like a burden to anyone, right? I didn't want anyone to feel bad for me. I don't think, I mean, and I also didn't want anyone to just see me differently. But yeah, when, when telling them, it definitely felt like a weight lifted off my shoulder. And the way that I actually, I, I told a good amount of people was actually through a, a local, my local newspaper. I did an article and Dang. right. Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> you're coming out. Yeah, I know. Exactly. Exactly. I, I, it's like <laughs> coming out of the genetic, genetic disease closet in some sense. And totally. I, I remember that because what kind of shifted that mindset also to tell people was these these two different major life experiences that happened. One was a good friend of mine, my uh, senior in college, the day before spring semester, last semester, uh, he he passed away in, a, in a, you know unexpectedly in an off campus uh, you know accident. I guess is the best way to put it. And it was tough to you know lose a friend uh, so soon, so suddenly. Who again, I didn't know him as long as his other closer friends, but the connection, the energy was there. And I, I was like, okay, this is a great guy. He's kind of living life in the moment and he's really just someone I, I need to stay in touch with. And then this happened and I was like, wow, someone gone so, so soon. And then, you know, it was, I think, like a year or two later where I had another friend. Um, who had the juvenile version of Huntington's disease. So this, this is uh, ultra rare, I guess. <laughs> you know, Huntington's disease is rare, but then you have juvenile Huntington's disease, which progresses a lot faster in kids. And my friend had it, and she passed away at the age of 26, but she was always sharing her story. She always had a smile on her face. And with those, with those two different life experiences, I just realized, wow, they, they lived in the moment. They shared their story why not do the same thing? Why not, you know, be open about my story because it can end up helping someone else out knowing that they're not alone and knowing that they're not feeling that sense of isolation that I felt when I was a kid, or even when I felt when first learning about my test results and not being able to share it with others. I'm just nodding. <laughs> Amen to that. I'm sorry about your friends. That's, that's a that's really hard, but I'm I'm so glad that the legacy they left was so valuable and that it moved you in a way to do the same thing, right? And make a difference in another patient's life. Yeah, I mean, it, it really did. Over time, again, when I first learned about it, I, I shared it with a few people and it was kind of like having these like 
small interactions with people. So I would like sit my friends down, like, hey, let's go, you know, grab a beer. Hey, let's go chat. And I'm like, hey, this is what happened. Here's the deal. I've also learned though, is (laughs) the importance of, you know, you don't need to start every conversation with that. What I mean by that is I started getting more so comfortable that I would go, I would go out on dates and I'd be like, Hey, by the way, uh, th- I have this thing, but like, are we so cool? And it was just like, Oh boy. Uh, so yeah. Like let her eat some French fries first. I know, not out. even the French fry. Now it's like, get the first beer. It's like, cheers. Oh, by the way. And it's like, Oh, need a couple more drinks. <laughs> so I, I did learn that. I learned that you, you can't just open up with that. And, and again, more importantly, not being defined by that but yeah I, I try to kind of keep my my friends uh you know I guess legacy or memories alive I mean with my friend uh my good friend from college his name was Jake Hoffman and with Jake you know it, it was it was devastating because again I was starting to really build a, a close friendship with him and so I wanted to do something I'm always like hey I want to help people it's just kind of <laughs> I guess my, my aunt jo- jokes with me that said, I think when I was like 10, 11 or 12, we uh, did some like charity thing. And she's, she's like, yeah, you were in the car. And you're like, you know, you told me that one day you just want to help people. And I'm like, that's right. I want to help people. But, you know, when I learned about this, I, I was like, well, I still want to honor Jake somehow. So, you know, there's two parts. One part was, I wanted to make sure that he was able to kind of quote unquote graduate with us. And so I spoke with, you know, the, the business school that we're both in. I said, Hey, this is what happened. This is what I want to make happen. Uh, Connected his parents to them and his parents were able to kind of go on stage and get like an honorary uh, diploma for him. And, and that was really cool just to see that and see everyone stand because they were like, wow, this is amazing. And then the other part was to have a scholarship in his name at, at the university. And so I worked with his parents. We put on this golf tournament that they, that they still put on. I told them, I said, my goal is to just get enough for an endowment. And we got that within two years. And, you know, they're still doing it. I think they they did like a social distance uh, one this past year. And I think it was, this was like year five or something. And just to see that keep, keep happening, it's just so amazing. That's so beautiful. I love that story. Yeah. So tell me how that segued you into starting our Odyssey. Great question. Obviously, it was amazing and it felt good and it worked and you made an impact and gave the parents, the grieving parents, you know, that hope as well that there was there was something more to it. There was more meaning to this terrible, sad thing. As I've gotten older, I've just learned it's just it's tough to see people gone too soon in life. The reason, you know, we started it, it was more just because we realized there's this unmet need. And it's it's interesting because for me, I never thought I would start a nonprofit. <laughs> I, I told myself, I to be perfectly honest with you, I, I told myself, I don't know if I'd ever want to start one because when I went back to to school, I, to grad school and got a master's in nonprofit management, like one of the first classes, they say, okay, here's why you should not start a nonprofit. Because there's millions of nonprofits <laughs> out there. They're all doing very similar work. Don't reinvent the wheel. And I said, totally, totally agree. But then the other part was like, I realized that there was this unmet need. I was like, wow, like, you know, there's all these young adults out there 
who are living with a, a rare disease. And when one of the first people actually I met outside of the Huntington's disease space was Anna. And I remember like we were connected by email. Oh, Anna. I know Anna's, Anna's great. And we're, we're connected by email. And I just remember that conversation where, you know, we were just talking, we're like, we talked like we knew each other for years. We were talking like we understood each other. And I was like, wow, this is awesome. We got to stay connected, which of course we did. Otherwise we wouldn't be here today. But I, I started asking other young adults if they would be interested in connecting with people outside their disease state. And I took it one step further and actually I did like a survey. I was like, I'm going to survey young adults. And I found out that 80% of young adults said, hey, I feel comfortable connecting with young adults outside my disease state. And then I said, well, what type of support? And then about 65% or so said, hey, I'd be interested in in in-person support or even virtual support. So I was like, okay, that's, that's one area. But then I was like, eh, I don't know if I really want to start this nonprofit. So I started asking young adults, you know, uh, what they would be interested in and if they'd be interested in connecting with young adults throughout the year. Because we would go to these events or conferences, we'd connect with people, and then it's like, all right, I'll see you same place, same time next year. And you're back to reality. And said, how can we kind of improve that to where we can keep young adults connected throughout the year and help them kind of socialize and network with others who just get it. And it was, I remember I was at a rare disease week through like the Every Life Foundation. And I was, I was talking with some young adults about this idea. And then one young adult was like, this sounds amazing. Are you, you know, who's going to do this? Are you going to do this? Are you going to put this together? <laughs> I was like, all right, I guess, I guess I will. I guess we'll, we'll make this happen. And that's kind of how we started. And, and what's great is, now seeing that there's other organizations that are really realizing the importance of supporting young adults makes it even more fulfilling, making sure that young adults get the support they need, not just from our odyssey, but there's, you know, I'm learning about these other young adult organizations out there as well. And it's kind of similar to like the cancer space. Uh, The cancer space I've learned has a decent amount of young adult cancer organizations. Some of them are kind of uh, cancer specific. Others are more umbrella organizations. But what I've learned is that they're able to all kind of work together because I realized, hey, I can't be everything to everyone. So how do we partner together to really, you know, improve the quality of life for these young adults, you know, in the cancer space? And so I said, well, how do we do that in the rare disease space? And that's kind of how our odyssey started was, hey, let's let's build something. But be prior to even building it, let's ask the young adults what they're looking for. Because I'm a big believer. It's, a, it's not the whole build it and they will come. It's listen, learn, and then build. Because if you don't listen to them and you don't learn from them, you're not going to build the right thing for them. That's so awesome, Seth. And I just really am fascinated by how curious you remained and asking questions and forging on and figuring out what exactly your path was going to be. It's so cool. I love it. What are like maybe the top two resources or conversations that you've discovered that's maybe missing or not being had that either you've helped create or that you're wishing was something already for your community. I, I feel like this could be a whole nother podcast episode. <laughs> that's true. That's that's kind of a big question. <laughs> I'll do my best to answer it. So one is that young adults are comfortable connecting outside their disease state. We learned that after coming to a, a meetup that young adults feel less isolated. They feel more connected to their peers. 
they feel a part of a community. Regarding topics, you know, one of the one of the biggest ones that we've heard is like, you know, self-advocating at the doctor's office. I mean, it's it's tough because we want to make sure young adults feel empowered and sometimes, you know, it's it's how do you stick up at the do- how do you stick up for yourself at the doctor's office? How do you ask the right questions? How do you really say, "Hey, this doctor isn't a good fit. I'm going to try to find a new doctor." Um, there's that piece. There's the mental health piece, I think, is also a big topic of discussion. You know, when we talk about mental health, making sure that you have affordable mental health services. And I think, yeah, those would be the, the two big pieces that at least I've learned from these meetups uh, is that we need to find more ways, you know, uh, to make sure young adults are, are you know, having a voice at the table. Yeah. And learning the skills to advocate, right? And navigate and feeling supported. Absolutely. In doing those scary things. Yeah. there's. I mean, it, it, and the world is scary. I'll, I'll admit that. Like from my own experience and hearing from others, it's not, there's not like a one size fits all, right? Because everyone's kind of journey or odyssey, right, is, is different. But at, at the end of the day, it's still you know, going on a similar or parallel path. I just have one more question, really. I kind of want to know maybe what is the most profound accomplishment that you feel for yourself, whether it was starting as this 15-year-old kid, going through a diagnosis, starting a foundation, making all of these programs available for the young adult community. What is one thing that really just radiates in your soul for you? Oh, man. One? (laughs) Yep, just one. I'm gonna say I have two, but I, I will. I will do. Just... You can tell me. You can tell me both. All right. So the first one is is being able to do a TEDx talk in my hometown. That was a, a really cool accomplishment, and that also got me so curious about this health space to begin with. In all honesty, I mean, I knew about you know the Huntington's disease space, but I didn't know about this larger rare disease space until I did this TEDx talk and was like, wow, this is a pretty cool opportunity. But speaking with people afterwards and one person saying, hey, I have a health condition because of you, I want to now get more involved in my community and realizing the power of storytelling and how it can make it uh, an impact on the community. So there's that piece. That's so awesome. We'll link that in the show. I appreciate it. Yeah. I mean, I never would have thought that I would have done a, a, a TEDx talk and how I'll be honest, I knew about them, but I didn't realize how prevalent they were until people were like, wow, you did want, you did a TED talk. I was like, well, it's TEDx, but yeah, same thing, I guess. I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> same thing. But being able to do it in my hometown was, was pretty cool. And it was about my, so cool. about my genetic testing journey. And, you know, I just, I appreciated that opportunity. I learned a lot about just how to kind of perfect or, or enhance your speaking skills. That, that was, that was tough, but I, I learned a lot. And then the other kind of accomplishment to me, it was such a, uh, it was amazing was I was uh, awarded by the Boston Celtics as a hero among us, which they award every home game to someone who's doing work in the community. And I remember getting the call from the Celtics because my former like middle school slash high school basketball coach was working at the Celtics in their community relations department. And he must've given my number out to one of his coworkers who then called said, Hey, we'd like to honor you. And I'm like, this get out of here. Like I'm a huge, huge <laughs> basketball fan. And uh, I just, it was just such an amazing experience to be able to 
kind of go out on at like the center of court during a timeout and seeing everyone stand for you. And I was like, all right, don't do anything stupid. <laughs> and like, they gave you their, like a, like a, not your actual like award, like plaque thing, but like they gave you like a fake one just temporarily. And I was like, all right, just don't drop it. Just don't do anything. Act <laughs> cool. Right. And it, it's, it was just a, it was an amazing opportunity. That is so rad. I love that it's circled to your love of basketball, too, in your hometown. That's so awesome. What a special day. It was. I've heard you say a couple times that you never thought you would do this or you never thought you would start this. And I'm just going to say that I'm never going to be surprised when you take more steps and spread your mission even further because you're awesome. And I'm so glad to have someone like you in our community. So thanks for all that you do. And thanks for sitting down and telling me a little bit more about it, Seth. I really appreciate you being a guest. Yeah, thanks, Effie. I, I, I appreciate you having me. I hope you've been enjoying this podcast. If you like what you hear, please share this show with your people. And please make sure to rate and review it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also head over to Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter to connect with me and stay updated on the show. If you're interested in sharing your story, or if you have anything you would like to contribute, please submit it to my website at effieparks.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show and for supporting me along the way. I appreciate y'all so much. I don't know what kind of day you're having, but if you need a little pick-me-up, Ford's got you.